Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name's Jean, and I have been writing about my recovery since the first day I quit drinking over five years ago on a blog called Unpickled. I've had a lot of interesting experiences and insights and lessons along the way, and the best part of all are the people that I have encountered. And one such amazing woman is my friend Kelly. We met at a yoga retreat for women in recovery and found that we have a shared passion for learning and personal growth. I am so pleased to welcome you to the Bubble Hour. Kelly, thank you for coming on tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, I know that this first part where we ask people to talk about themselves is always a little bit nerve-wracking, and so um, often what people do is write out their story and then read it for us, and I know that's what you're going to do for us now. So just by way of introduction, Kelly, um, I invite you to to read your story for us. Okay, well, thank you. I'm going to jump right in then. Great. So, okay, thanks, Jean. I grew up in a family where drinking was the norm. My dad left when I was two for his first love, which was alcohol. He was really intelligent, charismatic, and well-traveled, but it was clear from a very early age that drinking was his highest priority. Our rare visits with him were usually in one of the bars he owned. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized he was an alcoholic. I just thought he loved to have fun, and we didn't fit into that picture. My mom raised us on her own very lovingly, but alcohol was a big part of her life, too how she socialized and relaxed and coped with stress. She would drink normally most of the time, but there were times when she would drink too much, not having a stop sign, which was scary to me as a child. I started to drink at the end of high school. I was an introvert, and it felt like the cure. From the very beginning, sometimes I would be able to stop, and sometimes I'd have no stop sign. This didn't raise flags for me. I thought it was normal. From early on, I was attracted to charismatic, intelligent boys who liked to drink. I thought it was a great combo. Looking back, it was really the main thing I had in common with the man I ended up marrying when I was 24. We had very different interests, but we both loved to drink. He was smart and a good provider, so even though there were early flags, I ignored them. At first, I didn't question our drinking together at all. It wasn't until I realized that he was drinking even more without me and hiding it that I started to get worried. I focused all of my attention on him and my worrying about his drinking. He would promise not to lie to me about it or to cut back, and then he'd break his promise. This went on for years. During this time, I didn't consider that I had a problem with alcohol. I continued to drink the way I always had, which I considered normal. Drinking normally, but with nights with no stop signs thrown in, and never knowing when those nights would be. During this time, and even though I had early concerns about my husband's drinking and the line that was increasingly accompanying it and causing big problems in our marriage, We went on to have four kids. I threw myself into mothering, even homeschooling them, working to give them the childhood I'd always wanted. 
I was actually kind of proud that I was such an involved earth mama and that I liked to drink. I thought it was an eclectic combo. The friends I made were smart, loving moms, and we all shared our love of relaxing over wine. About 10 years ago, my dad's life, which while it had caused me a lot of pain, had seemed to work for him, began to fall apart. He got two DUIs in quick succession, lost a successful bar, and ended up spending a year in prison. He eventually ended up losing everything to the point that he was homeless in the town where he had once been very successful. All his drinking buddies disappeared, and he turned to me, the only person willing to be there for him at this scary time in his life. This caused me great anguish. It was at this time that it finally began to start piercing my brain that maybe alcohol didn't equate happiness as I'd always believed. It seemed to be causing me a ton of pain, both with my dad and with my husband. I proceeded to struggle with codependency issues with both of them, neither of whom would consider eliminating alcohol. And for most of this time, I didn't even want them to. I wanted them to just drink normally. In my mind, a big part of me agreed with them that despite the obvious pain it was causing, what was life without alcohol? I began to get stabs of insight that alcohol was way too important to me. After 20 years of marriage and tired of being in pain, we began to see a marriage counselor. We learned lots of good communication tools, but none of them would work with alcohol in the equation. I let my husband know that I would no longer drink with him at home, only when we went out. But because I wasn't the one with the problem, I began to drink before he got home from work, which was easy because he worked long hours. I began hiding my wine bottles in my closet so he wouldn't see them. Even as I justified it, this fact was piercing through my denial. In many ways, I built the perfect life. I had four beautiful, healthy kids. We lived in a house I loved on the water. My husband had a good job, and I loved being home with my kids. We had everything, but it began to become apparent to me that I was drinking to numb. I was feeling increasingly sad and stuck in my life, and solutions seemed impossible to come up with. I felt overwhelmingly confused. Finally, at one of our last therapy sessions, I brought up the fact of our drinking, which we had downplayed. She was dumbfounded and asked us both to commit to going without for one week. She asked us what else we could do together. We couldn't think of a thing. We left there and went straight for drinks and appetizers. It was the first time that I'd been asked directly to stop for any amount of time by anyone else. It was extraordinarily hard for me to stop that one week. It finally occurred to me that I needed to take steps to get my own drinking under control. The more I tried to get it under control and moderate, the more I became obsessive about it. I would make promises to myself that I didn't keep. Thinking about drinking and when I could and when I couldn't took up a crazy amount of energy. But during this time, I began to start taking the advice I'd been dishing out to my husband for years. I began exercising regularly, reading blogs and books about sobriety, finding online support, and I even went to visit an addiction therapist I'd wanted him to see. The addiction therapist let me know that the best thing I could do for my husband was to concentrate on me being as healthy as I could. At first, I wanted to see him and be part of my sober online group as I tried to moderate. But the cognitive dissonance was too much, and my denial finally broke all the way open. I'll never forget my last night of drinking. I hadn't drank that much for me, but I was outside playing with my kids, and we were all laughing, and it was like I could see myself from above, and I knew that even though I was with them, I wasn't really with them. I woke up in the middle of the night, parched and panicked, as usual, but this time something was different. I had a moment of total clarity. 
I know too much to continue to drink. I know I'm hurting my kids. I know I'm hurting myself. I can't let them have two parents whose first priority is drinking. When you know better, you do better. For a long time, I sincerely feel like I didn't know better, but then I did. And to keep drinking after I knew better was something I just couldn't live with. I knew I was leaving for a two-week vacation in a few days with my husband and extended family where alcohol would be a huge ingredient. I thought that maybe I should wait until I got back, but my insights were so powerful and clear that I felt like I couldn't wait. I was scared that maybe I'd lose this clarity I had, so I made the decision to stop right then and there completely. That was March 18, 2014. It was a crazy time to make this decision. Alcohol had always played a huge role in my vacations. I'll always remember that first day of our trip, which was only like my fourth day of sobriety. We had flown into the town where my dad was living in a homeless shelter. It was painful, but I wanted to see him, take him some things, and take him out to lunch. Of course, he wanted to go for margaritas, but I found a casual burger place that didn't serve alcohol. I made it through the airport scene, which was a big deal in its own way. Then I made it through taking my dad out to lunch with my kids there and dropping him off at the shelter afterwards, which was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. After that, we drove up a couple hours to the beach town where we had rented a little house. We all walked down the main street to the beach, and I was bombarded with drinking everywhere I looked. Cool-looking bars with people on the patios drinking and laughing. It felt like all I could see. I remember feeling almost dizzy from it. It was so in my face and so monumental to me that I wasn't one of those people that I would have been on any other vacation, and especially after a day like the one I just had. I remember being in almost a panic to find some sparkling water, like my life depended on it. I found that sparkling water and somehow made it through that day. I woke up the next morning early, feeling so incredibly proud of myself for getting through that overload to my senses, and I went for a walk to the beach while my family was still sleeping. It was like I went out there with a whole new eyes, where the night before all I could see was alcohol and partying. With this new day, everything looked clean and fresh. I could hear the birds singing and the waves coming up, and for the first time, I saw all the coffee and tea shops. I saw juice and smoothie bars and wonderful bakeries that were open early. There were people out and about doing healthy things, running, walking, bicycling, and surfing. So something else clicked for me that morning. There was a whole world out there that I had never really explored or even paid attention to before that was there for the taking. And that's what my whole time in sobriety has really been like, discovering parts of myself and the world that have always been there but I didn't even see before because alcohol was clouding my lenses. It has given me such a sense of joy, even in hard times, to be able to see the world and myself with these fresh eyes. And because I made it through that trip, there was a feeling I had that my sobriety was forged in steel. I made it through that, so there was no way a bad day at home was going to get me to take a drink kind of thing. So I came home and went to work filling up my internal toolbox for the first time in my life. I had spent so many years counting on alcohol as my one tool for dealing with stress and good times. Now I became passionate about finding other tools, and my life transformed. In my first year without drinking, everything in my life changed. It was like a weak, dying flower began to come to life and blossom. I began to feel strong and empowered and knowing I was capable of doing this hard thing. This inner tools, the inner tools I picked up fortified me and gave me hope. The healthier I got, the more clarity I was able to have over things that weren't working in my life. I got the courage to face that the most loving thing to do for all involved was to end my 24-year-old marriage, which was a dream that was excruciating for me to let die but I knew it was the healthiest thing to do. I was also able to let go of the house I love so much because selling it allowed us both to move forward. That was also so, so painful, 
but I knew I had to decide what was important to me, what was most important to me, and that meant setting down some things that were really hard to set down. During this time, I became healthier inside and out, which included losing 30 pounds. To the outside, it caught people off guard. Everything seemed to be happening so fast, but I knew that it was like the story of the Chinese bamboo tree, where you plant a seed, and for five years you don't see any growth, but in the fifth year it grows to 80 feet. So much is going on under the surface. So that is my story, in as brief a way as I can tell it. Kelly, I knew you would tell a compelling story, but I was so transfixed listening to you that my computer went to sleep. Because <laughs> I forgot to do what I'm supposed to do to keep it going, to keep the studio going. So you transported me to your journey, and um, your story is so powerful. And um, and there's a lot more to it even than what you just shared. Um, I know our listeners are going to hear themselves in, in what you just shared. And, and I know there's more to the story as we talk about it, about going forward. But um, what a year it's been, right? Like what, yeah. what, what two years it's been. Yes. And, um, I guess my first question and the first thing most people really want to know when they're hearing from someone um, in recovery is how did you do it? What tools did you use to get sober um, in the beginning and then to make that change and then as time went on to um, perpetuate the change and, and keep yourself motivated? What's in your toolbox? Yeah, I was, I was thinking that, um, you know, before I actually stopped drinking, the things that were working on, the, you know, my, my roots underground were the things I was reading and the concepts I was getting uh, that were just, you know, it, it feels like a piercing. It's so hard when it's your brain that's being fooled. And so you need those moments of clarity and, and stabs of insight, which I yeah. got from people um, who'd gone before me and people who were writing about this. Um, it really helped early on while I was still drinking to read blogs like yours where I would see someone who I thought, that could be me. I, I can relate to you. You right. know, in my life, I had personally had people who were so much worse than me. Um, mm-hmm. So often people think, oh, that has to be, you have to be so bad to be. But in my own life, I was like, I wasn't nearly as bad as the people yeah. I, who I cared about. And, right. uh, and so it was easy for me to say, I, I'm so confused. Do I really, I can't have a problem. Um, and so when I started reading blogs of people whose stories were like mine, it was like that was so eye-opening to me. Yeah. And I was so good. And then um, a big one was um, when I started reading Tired of Thinking About Drinking, um, and she offered the 100-day challenge. And I remember thinking I would try that because I could imagine 100 days, not forever. Um, And so that was a concept that really helped me. And I tried to do it for – I did it for 30 days. And then I thought, oh, I got this. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm going to try to moderate now. I think I can do it. And, you know, she said good luck with that. And I, of course – I, I found out I couldn't moderate, and I didn't end up needing to go back to that to her for that challenge because I just knew yeah. that was my experiment, and I knew. But her concept. I'm gonna, I just want to pause you there real quick okay. and just tell our listeners that. So tired of thinking about drinking is a blog. If you if you search that, it'll come up. It's a mm-hmm. very popular blog. Um, yeah. It's run by a woman named Belle, and I think she has a number of um, volunteers that help her as well. And she mm-hmm. suggests that in order to to get started on stopping. You start yourself with a 100-day challenge just mm-hmm. yeah. to break it down into palatable 
bits because I think a lot of us are quite afraid of um, of it being forever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, but a hundred days, like you said, I think I can do that. Um, and so that challenge is something you can sign up for on that website, and it sends you daily emails and that kind of thing, right? And yeah, encouragement. Okay. I think and, that concept and, is very helpful, and it did help me just get going and get unstuck yeah. from a place I'd been stuck a long time. Yeah. She also yeah. Um, introduced me to the concept that she calls Wolfie, which is the name for that addicted part in your brain, which just wants everything now. It doesn't care about yeah. your well-being. And I'm really visual, so that image of a uh, wolf, and I've heard people call it by different names. But for yeah. me, I just love that image because it helped me to understand why I couldn't drink now and then because it just like it wakes him up and makes him think. Right. And more and more and yeah. more. And if you could just not drink for periods of time, like to my mind – he goes into hibernation, he sleeps. And yeah. when I started seeing that as a separate part of me, it really shifted my thinking. And it helped me with the people I loved when they're drinking. Because instead of seeing it as them, I'm like, that's your wolfie. And I could almost feel like I'm not going to engage with your wolfie. Right. <laughs> and just that whole yeah. terminology, a little bit childlike, but it just totally transformed the way I approached it. And so I really yeah. credit that a lot. And then um, the other big piece of it in my thinking stage was um, Alan Carr's book, you know, The Easy Way to Control Alcohol, and his mm-hmm. analogy of us um, being like flies caught in the Venus flytrap, and we think we can fly away at any time, you know, but we're getting <laughs> dissolved from the inside. <laughs> that right. really works for me. Uh, it resonated. Yeah. And then also yeah. his concept of the, uh, he uses a chapter about like the Truman Show, and we're all in our own little Truman Show of our own little reality. And I thought, that's so true, you know, and you get these, that's what denial is. You're in like, this is your norm. You don't know anything else. Right. You don't want to know anything yeah. else. Yeah, and, and you uh, slowly, like, you sort of erase your, I'll never do this thing, right? Like, well, I'll never drink every day. Oh, okay, well, now I drink right. every day. I'll never drink alone. Oh, well, now I drink alone every day. <laughs> right, exactly. And also, you're normal. what's or, normal to you may not be yeah. normal to other people, but if that's all you, kind of all you know, yeah. that's your normal. It could be right. totally different. You think this is everyone's normal, but it's not. And I think for uh, people that are outside of addiction, you know, they might look at a woman who's drinking home alone every day or someone like your dad who's homeless and mm-hmm. think like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they sort of see that stage and think like as if it happens fast and it's like overnight, like how could someone let that happen? But it's these little baby steps, Right. So that's exactly right. Which is what keeps it feeling normal. Like you're just, well, this is my normal, but I'm just, a, I'm letting a little bit more in. Oh, now I'm letting a it's little so bit more gradual. in. It's so gradual. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another article I um, I would love that I, I would share with everybody is um, this article by renegademothering.com. I don't know if you've heard of her. No, um, Renegade uh, Mothering. There's an article, um, Renegade Mothering, and she has an article called We Don't Start with a Needle in Our Arm. And I think she had done that <laughs> after um, Phyllis, uh, what, Seymour Hoffman died. And yeah. um, and it was this her and she um, had alcohol issues, and that was it. It's like that concept was another piece. Of, I feel like it's pieces of a puzzle. Like that's true. You don't. My dad didn't start homeless. He started looking like it was a lot of fun. He traveled the world. Right. He was very. He was kind of a Peter Pan, happy. And it was like, who who am I hurting? And that life is good, until right. you know, all, it's desperately not. Right. And you know, and and so. Um, you know, I, I could see that ahead of me, and I thought I had to find myself on that continuum and realize, like, maybe he was, where was he when he was my age? You right. know, it a lot, looked a lot right. different. Yeah. So that was powerful. And so those were, um, and also then my other 
huge thing was Pema, I listened to Pema Chodron. I had really not worked on the spiritual part of my life at all. And when I found her work and listened to her voice, and she, uh, one of the ones that affected me so powerfully was Don't Bite the Hook, um, which, you know, was basically having compassion that it's a human condition to want to escape things that stress us out or cause us pain. But if you can write yeah. it out, that you're going to, then that's a way to work through your problems. The more you always keep running, they just stay there. And, and this all was just saying, making such sense to me. And I started to really see, like, wait, alcohol is keeping me stuck. It's not the answer. <laughs> and it's, I remember a conversation you and I had about a boat on the waves. What was that yeah. visual? Share that one with us. Uh, yeah, well, that's a, one of the quotes I love uh, that really means a lot to me from her is, um, you are the sky. Everything else is just the weather. And that concept that we are always okay, that life will will you know have stormy clouds, and life will will have you know beautiful days. But it's if you can have that trust that what after a storm comes, the beauty. After like choppy waves come smooth waves. It's the nature of life. And I just think for so long I hustled and worked so hard to think I could keep it sunny all the time. Or I yeah. could keep it smooth waters all the time if I could just find oh. the perfect formula. Right. And if I tried hard enough, I read the right book, or, you know, just I, and I, I just had that feeling. And, and so I do believe, like, the surrendering part of it to me was surrendering to the fact that the human condition means we're not in control of all that. And it's, like, such a relief. It's like and you're did not you feel wrong. the flip side of it? Kelly, if you're, if you're thinking, like, if I can just – do the right thing, I'll make it perfect all the time, then did you take on responsibility for when things weren't perfect? Did you feel like that was your failure instead of oh, that absolutely. just being a reality? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It caused a lot of pain, and I think that's a need. I think drinking is a symptom. It's just a, I wanted to escape because life hurt. I was trying so hard, and, and there's still pain, and, and like it just makes you feel that's where the confusion comes from. Like, how could I still feel pain? I'm, I'm working so hard. <laughs> um, I'm doing everything I know how to do, and still I'm in pain. So, uh, yeah, uh, just that right. realization that we're not doing anything wrong was like a revelation to me. Right. And so I appreciate that. Yeah. So that, those were the things that were feeding into, like, the percolating in my brain. And and then once I made that clear decision, like, I had that moment where this is it, um, then the tools I used, which I still use, um, online sobriety support, which is such a gift to have available 24-7, as you know, mm-hmm. um, where I met incredible, you know, and connected with incredible, beautiful women that were all there wanting to get off the elevator before it crashed to the bottom. And I just found myself full of admiration for the people, you know, and there's men there too, but the idea that people are there putting down something they've seen as good in their life because they know it's not serving them anymore. And I just, because I had so much admiration for them, it helped me feel that for myself. Like, right. I'm a good company. I am proud to be in this company. Right. And it took away the shame and, and any, sense of, um, any sense of shame I had because I thought, these people are superstars. Yeah. Uh, they're awesome. Right. <laughs> and so like that we think, been, oh, if I get sober, I'm going to be seen as a loser and broken yeah. and I couldn't fix this on my own. And instead, what we find is it's a community of people that are like, no, we're the ones that figured it out. <laughs> That's right. We're well, I mean, really strong, amazing yeah. people that are, are just like it's caring. It's like they're seekers, and they're like caring enough about themselves to not settle for a life uh, that's not working for them or hurting yeah. their kids. Or and it's just like I'm just so amazed and moved by everyone's stories. And, 
and that's just it's such a gift and it's such a gift to have that no matter what time of day and if you need if I need a support to reach out and have people just right there it's just I I I think it's just such a gift of this time we're in that we can have that kind of support I agree. Um, I think the internet has changed recovery forever because it's put us in touch with people we would never otherwise get to connect with. And, um, and we can still do it sort of in our safe bubbles, in our safety bubbles. And Um, that's true. And so we've met in person because of that, you know, so it becomes in real life, real life friendships. And that's very powerful. Which I didn't really think I lacked. You know, I have a lot of friends and I have a lot of good friends. Right. And I felt like my capacity for more friends was kind of full. Like if you'd have told me I was going to add like 50 amazing women to my life who I would just, you know, have such strong connection and interaction with, I would have thought like, where, where is the room for this yeah. on my calendar? Like how is this going to fit? And yet, yeah, online support is tremendous. And um, yeah. If anyone's listening and thinking like, well, where are these groups? How do I find them? They're they're actually not that hard to find. Um, you can start by searching online support and um, for for recovery or for women in recovery, and you'll you'll start to find some different things there. I have a resource page on my blog, unpickledblog.com. Um, there's a tab at the top that says resources that has some information there as well. So um, it it really is amazing, especially if um, a lot of our listeners are recovering without going to meetings or often mm-hmm. using other tools. And, um, you know, one of the great things about meetings is the community that is built into that. Mm-hmm. And it's the com- facing other people's what people fear about going to meetings. And yet it ends up being the biggest gift of meetings. But that's if right. that's not part of someone's recovery at the beginning, they can, they can find it online as well. You and I also your- think a big... But just a, a big part of that is um, I remember being in places, especially early in recovery, where I just would feel like I'm the only person not drinking, um, which I yeah. often was. And and but it was like I just had this like no I like I carried the people I had met through this online support with me, and I just yeah. where I was. I was like I know I wasn't alone. I just I know there's other people doing the same thing as me. And it was just amazing how powerful that was. Yes, to just be able to sneak into the bathroom and post a quick update or like yeah. or just to know they're there. like they're all over the yeah. country all over the world I'm not alone there's other people doing the same thing I'm doing yeah I don't know if I would have known that tell me how you felt then because it's quite an experience when you help someone else as well which mm-hmm. most of us join an online group to get help but we're surprised mm-hmm. at how wonderful it is to offer help how did you find that experience also very empowering which helps me to understand the power of meetings and, and the formula of how that works so early on, I also started an online gratitude group. Um, I just, you know, got like 10 people together, and we started sharing our gratitudes, which ended in, um, which was a very powerful way, and, you know, to start seeing life through the lens of gratitude versus being a, a victim. Right. Um, but I, I would start feeling a sense of accountability to them and a sense of caring about them so much and never wanting to let them down it was a big yeah. part of it for me. And, um, right. And, and just believing so much in them and really – it just couldn't help but make me feel like I could show them that it can be done. Uh, you know, yeah. I felt like if I couldn't do it, then what am I telling them? And right. so that was very helpful. So giving and helping other people has been, you know, another great reward. 
You mentioned your children. I know you're really close with your children. And I'm curious um, if you've talked to them about your recovery and how do you feel your recovery affects them and what you're modeling for them? Uh, I'm really close to my kids. My, um, my biggest sense of regret is that I didn't stop drinking earlier in their lives. Um, but I, I do take comfort in the fact that I have modeled to them that when something's not working for you, you can stop it. And yeah. I've really been open with them about it and talked to them about that and talked about my discoveries with them. And we'll kind of, we'll, I share like how our society is so crazy about it. When we watch TV or anything together, we're like, look at how they're making it so glamorous. Look at act like everyone drinks or it's okay to get sick or have hangovers or like, why is that when it's not okay to do that about cocaine or, you know, even cigarettes nowadays right. or all these marijuana and uh, and so they'll kind of talk about that and the double standard and how strange it is and and I'm just so grateful that we can have that conversation, yeah. So they can know and um and they see my aha moments and they've seen how much healthier and happier I am. So I think it's made a big impact on them. And my two oldest sons both moved out this year, one for his career and one for college, and they're both making the decision not to drink at this point and just feel like it's not worth it and they're not interested knowing the pain it's caused in their life, too. And wow. I feel like um, watching my my oldest son, who's living in a, a place where it's just, you know, it's just, uh, he's has, you know, a, lot, a harder time. He's working in a career with a lot of men who drink, and he has to face a lot of a lot of social issues about it. And it that's an area that makes me so angry, <laughs> that we have to actually yeah. defend not drinking. So when a, a young adult's making a choice that could, you know, make this whole life, healthier that you have to you don't just get to make that choice and have be you really have to defend it yeah have such strength and uh yeah so i'm really i'm amazed I, I, I long for the day where going alcohol free by choice is sort of like wearing sunscreen you know yeah. like mm-hmm. in the old days you used to use baby oil and everybody wanted a suntan and you know and now um and it was that sunscreen was a big deal when it came in right like why wouldn't you want right. a tan and I, but now it's so normal, and in fact, we see it as being proactive and healthy. And I, I, I really hope that someday being alcohol-free by choice is, is sort of just falls into the same category of, oh, good, you're taking care of yourself, you know? Of course you I are. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the part that's the really clincher that gets you, because it's like, okay, you know, why do we have to defend it? That's the crazy right. part. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I feel like and it's how, very positive. And your relationship with your dad as a result of you quitting drinking, how, how has that changed or what, how does he feel about it? Uh, he thinks I'm really being extreme. He's still in a alcoholic mindset. He is, you know, if he, he's uh, currently getting treated for like late stage cancer and he has actually escaped from his, his um, healthcare center to try to get liquor in between chemo treatments. And I mean, he, he's so hardcore and, and so he just thinks, I, you know, very kind of laughs about it and takes it very lightly that I'm doing it, yeah. thinks I'm, and, you know, it's hard because, you know, he just, he, he still doesn't get, you know, to the extent of the damage it's caused in his own life right. or others. And, but, you know, I don't, I, I just don't, I stay in my lane with it. I, it yeah. doesn't affect me what, you know, I'm, I'm okay with, you know, just, I, I kind of, he's so extreme that it's easier to accept. <laughs> Um, you know, you just used the words, I stayed in my own lane. And yeah. that's something 
that that's kind of a that's kind of recovery speak. And for yeah. me, that was a hard concept to grasp of like because I I'm a fixer and I like to fix the world and also I like being right. So I like telling everybody I can see what they're doing wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the idea of you know you do you and I'm gonna take care of me was it, like I really ground my gears on that. Did you have a hard time accepting that? Or oh did, yeah, did you have to? in my marriage. Yeah. And, you know, I just thought that there must be some way. I, cause, and part of me felt responsible to, like, I, I see this, and you you don't see it, so I need to help you. The codependent right. part was very hard for me, and it still is. Yeah. Uh, but I am getting more and more that um, this is the most helpful thing I can do, is is just model my good health, model that I am happy in recovery. And that's the best chance. I've tried every other thing, and I know it doesn't work. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, um, if, it, if there's something I could have done to help someone else, I would have done it. Right. Yeah. Of course you would, because you yeah. want to make everything perfect, right? Yeah. Um, another thing you said that I want to come back to is you said that you you um, quit drinking for 30 days and then you tried to moderate. Mm-hmm. And um, tell us about that experience. Oh, just that I just I had kind of. I really wasn't accepting I, all this time, even hiding it, my own drinking at home, I justified it. And so I just kind of had a hard time believing that I was that bad. And so, but when I tried to moderate, like, how, you know, it happens all the time. The stories go that I became obsessed with it. It'd be like, I'm only going to drink with friends. And then it would be, how many days till I meet with her? <laughs> and, you know, and it just was like, it was not at all, you know, a positive thing. And, and I was verbal yeah. about it with friends, like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try just to drink when we go out. And they were along with me on my journey of this. And and then, you know, I just was open. It doesn't work. I think about it too much. Yeah. And I, I think um, I'm a vegetarian, too, and kind of went to that same thing. Like, I remember before I stopped eating meat, it was kind of similar. It was, like, so much easier just to say no versus trying to think about it every time. Yeah, um, that that kind of thinking just released all the sorts of energy, and then you do find all the good things there are to do. And if you're always wondering if you can have a drink, right? Like there's just never occasion that it, I could always make an occasion for it. I, you know, I often tell people that too. It really is easier to just quit. It it really yeah. is. Um, moderation can be hell, and yeah. especially if you're addicted, right? <laughs> and trying to yeah. moderate, um, it really is easier to just put all your eggs in that one basket, in my opinion. And um, I want to ask you, too, about all the changes that you went through, you know, in the in the year and the months after you got sober. Did being sober help all of that, or did it hinder it, would you say? So I, I was thinking about that. I wouldn't have had these changes if I hadn't been sober, first of all. I would have still been treading water and feeling confused. So it was kind of funny because – the whole premise had to be that I was sober. And then being right. sober was um, just helped me just feel the pain or whatever I was feeling just so honestly, and I had no choice but to work through it and to process it. And it just felt cleaner even and even and still now when I'm feeling the sadness. It's, it's, just, it just, it's just real. And then I am trusting, just like the weather, that it will pass, and it does. Um, before, I would drink to soothe myself, and I think it would just keep me stuck. And yeah. I wouldn't move through the emotions. And so I'm just so grateful because all these things have happened. I've lost my grandma, I was very close to, and, um, you know, both my older kids moved out that are really painful all by themselves. 
And yeah. I just feel like if I had been drinking, I can't even imagine, you know, how I would have coped because I just would have, you know, it's just, it's all, well, it has been super painful. So being sober is like I could just feel it and also find the joy in it and the gratitude and, and I have the tools. I just, my biggest thing was I, because I started drinking when I did, I didn't develop other tools. And so at right. time, I have started to develop tools that if, like, if alcohol was the thing I'd go to, I would stop there. And so I never, like, there's so many other ways that are, like, fulfilling to me now well, that I well, can fill myself up. Um, what, like yoga, what do you which use? I had never yeah. done before. I go yoga, yoga and, um, you know, nature, I'm realizing how important that is to me. Um, just, you know, I treat I treat myself like like the recovery retreats we've gone on. I've met with you there, um, things like that. Where I I would used to think oh that's too expensive, but now I think I put all the money that I know I would have spent on alcohol into that fund, and I just yeah. <laughs> I with no guilt, you know. Spend wow, that does money. that add and up? Okay, <laughs> it does add up. And I feel like those are things like I would have thought oh that's too luxurious, but I fit in, you know, the money to get drinks. Yeah, yeah. So um, self care has been a uh, huge part of my my um my thing and I just never knew how to do that. I, giving to other people was what I did and so you know, I feel like in the end that wasn't healthy for anybody. And so you know, now if I need to go to bed early, I go to bed early. You know, if I need to yeah. get in the shower and cry or somehow I'll do that. You know. Yeah, I don't I don't pretend like everything's fine every minute. Yeah. And it, it's hard. I still find it hard to do that sometimes. Or yeah. sometimes, um, if I'm with someone who I feel like they haven't earned the the right to know, like the real me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I'll do that. I'm fine. Everything's fine. And I haven't quite found like the in between thing of like faking it and being honest. Like I do yeah. feel there's sort of this it's part of protecting myself, I think, where I do the I'm fine thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm getting, I'm really good at being real with myself and my family, but I, I, I'm still trying to learn how to, how to be real all the time without telling everyone everything, you know? Yeah. Is I think that's a level trick. Of, um, yeah. I'm with um, you. I'm still learning that too. It's learning, right? We're, we're yeah. learning as we go. Do you meditate? Yes, I, I'm meditating, and I have a, I think I told you I've recently signed up for a really big two-year program. It's a contemplative psychology class with a, you know, that's working with Buddhist principles and mindfulness and meditation, and so I really jumped into that in the deep end recently, and uh, so that's huge, huge so support to me, me. Is that a full-time program or a night uh, It's a, not a full-time. A... It's a weekends and, and week-longs. It's a, but people from all over the you know, people from Canada and Hawaii also find to, you know, Washington State to do this. And it's this amazing thing where you're just working with, basically you're working with your own mind, compassion, so yeah. that you can extend it to others. And it's a really, uh, some outside my comfort zone, but it was basically lots based on the kind of work that Pema Chodron did. I was such a, I was like, I want more of that. And I want yeah. to um, learn this with people who have, you know, like that also. And it's just been a very exciting area for me to explore. That's amazing, uh, and I can hear how excited you are about it. So I'm I'm excited to learn what you learn as you go along because you're a great teacher in my experience. Uh-huh. Um, do you have a recovery bucket list, so to speak? Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I was um, 
I, you know, I was thinking that my, really it's pretty low key that my recovery bucket list is to keep on working to fill myself from the inside out and to live a life where I'm in alignment. Um, This is what leads to my feeling of a a thriving recovery. And I was, you know, this idea that uh, that's been on my mind a lot is that I've lived for the last over 20 years in homes that of all, each one has had a really beautiful view to look at it in its own way. And Mm -hmm. after my divorce, I've moved to a little house. that's very functional and, and loving, but it's, doesn't look out at a beautiful view and it's the first time and it's been a big adjustment for me but like the inside of this house is really beautiful to me and it really sparks joy I mean everything it just makes me so happy and we're happy yeah. yet and I just feel like that's such a symbolic thing for my life right now that you know I kept spending so many years looking out which was nice but the most important thing is the insides and the beauty that's on the inside and like I, I don't know if I knew, like now I really know that, that that is my foundation, that I could take that with me anywhere. And, yeah. you know, it's such a powerful thing. And so that is my goal in recovery is to always remember that and, uh, you know, to keep filling that up for myself and not think I need it from an outside source. That's awesome. That, that's, yeah. So, um I have a list of questions, as you know, (laughs) because I had to stay on track with you because I just, you interest me so much and you, uh, you just, this could be a three hour podcast if I'm left to my own devices. So I guess what I want to know next is if you have any golden moments that stick out in your mind from these last few years of recovery. I, I do. I, uh, one of my golden moments was um, last summer when my divorce was final, which ha- seemed to happen pretty quick. And it was because we were able to, you know, really work through it without things escalating and be respectful. And I was, it was just such a, I felt so proud of how it all unfolded. And so that right when it was final, I took my kids, my three kids to go visit their brother in a different state. And it was a big road trip. And I, the divorce was final. I, you know, and this sense I had of like, I did it. I, I walked through something I didn't think I was so scared of for so many years. And, um, and all, while there's sadness to it at that point, I just felt a sense of like exaltation I, I, and that I did it sober. And that like, even though people around me in, in my life here didn't really understand that ingredient as well as like, you know, friends out there might, but like in my, in my life here, like no one really understood what that took for me. <laughs> like right. how I had to dig so deep to get through something like when I couldn't even get through a day in traffic without coming over. I got, I got through that. I selling my house, my divorce is final without drinking. And I'm going and I woke up in the, you know, Montana looking at a teepee and a river. I was just like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) you know, I just felt like just so happy. And, you know, and I just think those moments of joy only came because I was able to feel it all. And it was like feeling just waking up and, that had been just kind of muted for so long. So that was a real golden moment. Um, I think I might have shared it about a month after that. I went on a went camping with a group of our friends and families and went on a super hard hike that, um, that up by Mount Rainier. And I thought it was way too hard for me is my opinion, but I was being encouraged and you can do it. And I was just like, what am I doing here? This is so hard. This is not fun. <laughs> Why aren't I sitting reading a book on my campsite? And I did it, and I kept up with everybody, and I got to the top. 
I had that same feeling of, oh, my gosh, I did it. I did it. Yeah. And it was like I just had this huge epiphany, like, that's why people do this, for one. But also, like, if you had got helicopter to the top, that you'd see the view, but you wouldn't have that sense of step by step, I did what I had to do, and I got here. And those tied together for me of the sense of achievement and sense of, like, empowerment that helps me believe I could do anything, even though I think I can't, even though I tell myself I can't. Um, I'm so much stronger than I think. And, um, and, it, and when you do those things, and all you have to do is one step at a time, you know, you can do it. And uh, I think those are just you know, so empowering. And the last one, I think, when I think of those moments was being in Mexico at the retreat, the She Recovers retreat uh, this, you know, last month. And how yes. like it was a year from when I had moved out. And at that time, I'm moving to a small house. I'm sad and all these, um, you know, it was a really sad weekend. And that a year, right at that year, Mother's Day. And, um, and you know, a year later, I'm sitting on the beach in Mexico. <laughs> feeling just so happy with people I was happy with. And, and just these wonderful, you know, feelings and thinking. It was just um, kind of affirmation of my faith that, you know, dark clouds do go by, and yeah. the sun comes, and I'll be okay when dark clouds come again. It's like, I know I have faith now. I don't need to hide from it. Well, I feel like anybody who's listening to this show and, like, thinking about getting sober and wondering, like, if their life is going to be over, I feel like they could hear the joy and freedom and accomplishment that you speak of and feel pretty inspired and and know that good things lay ahead in life after alcohol not not bad things so tell me what suggestions I mean I know we try not to give advice that was another thing that was really hard for me in recovery is that we all share our stories and let people take from it what they can and what they need Um, so I know we don't we try not to give advice we certainly don't go around telling other people what they should do um, but what pointers or suggestions would you offer someone who's trying to get sober right now? What are, what are some of the really wonderful things that, that you would encourage them to embrace? Um, if they're trying to, I guess one of the biggest concepts that, that helped me at that time was this, this aha moment that came when I realized that everyone who had what I wanted had to walk through the dark tunnel first. Like, so I'm visual. So that's how I just saw it. I'm like, I wanted a shortcut. I wanted it to be easy. I kept waiting for it to be easy. Um, or I kept thinking I, my situation was harder than someone else's at that moment. And, and then when I realized that when, as I read people's stories and listened to them, that there's not a person who had it easy to get there. Right. Like everyone. And so when I, when I kind of like embrace that, like, okay, I'm, too, I'm scared. I don't think I could do it, but I have to do it. I don't want to. No more trying to do shortcuts around it. I'm just going to walk through it and trust what they're saying, that it will get better. And to me, that's the best advice I can give anyone because I don't, I don't feel like that right now. But if you can trust that, that on the other side, the, the joy is there. Like everyone is saying that people shining their lights for you, people shine their lights for us, for me, ahead of me, still do. I'm shining my light now. I think maybe our, all of us can do that for each other. Ah, oh, I love that. 
And I, I love that you point out, like, don't wait, because when you got sober, it was right as your family was going on vacation. And so many people think, like, well, I'll quit when I get back. I can't. Of course I can't yeah. quit. I'm going on vacation. Well, yeah. oh, and then it's so-and-so's wedding, so I'll wait. I want to have champagne at the wedding with my friend, right. so I have to wait till after that. And there's always something. There's always a reason. There's always a dot on the calendar of why you can't do it this week, you know? Absolutely, and I think there's a kind of a moment of grace about it, and so I feel like it's so great to hang like when your mind is getting pierced out of its denial. I feel like hold on with both hands, you know, take that moment and and run yeah. with it. Yeah. And the other uh, last thing I was thinking of, like I love analogies, but that when I was thinking that I I really was like a dying flower who was just kind of wilting, and who when I got sobriety, I started to really you know perk right back up and blo- you know start yeah. to blossom, and, and on the outside I was like wow, all these changes, and they can't believe it. But I think that um, my, to take that analogy further, it's like if you did have a flower and it was dying, so you kept pouring more poison on it. <laughs> yeah. So I kept drinking more because I was, I was wilting. So I kept like, I need to drink more because I'm wilting. Uh, but when you take the poison off, it starts to perk up, but it's not right. enough. I mean, you still need to make sure it's getting good nutrients. You need to put it in the sun. You need to give it water. So it's like it's not enough to just to stop drinking. You really need to passionately be working to replace you know, what drinking, what you thought drinking was doing for you. You need to pick up the tools, you know, trust people when they say these tools work and try them. And, and really that is such a key component of, you know, to me, a really thriving recovery is, is the tools because it's not just taking away the poison for a flower. It's, it's giving it to the other things it needs. Yeah. Right. Trying to deal with the things that we were numbing, Right. Right, and also get, and, and finding other ways to comfort ourselves that feel right. good because if recovery doesn't feel good, then I could, you know, it has to feel good. Yeah. Um, and so that's just such a, I know that so often someone might just take away the alcohol and say, this doesn't work for me, but it's because at the same time as you're taking that away, you need to be adding other and things. And I think that's a critical piece. Right, and that, that speaks to that experience a lot of people have. We call it whack-a-mole where... Um, they quit drinking, but an eating disorder might flare up or um, something else comes up, you know, because yeah. they're leading on a different maladaptive coping behavior, to use the big word, to, to numb. And But if you peel back a little bit farther and say, why do I need to numb? What's going right. on? What, what What's going wrong with my thinking that this hurts? First of all, how can I address right. that? And second of all, what are some better ways to comfort that as you say, nourish me instead of deplete. That's so, and, and, you know, and for me, just the, I did see addiction therapist my first year and I was so fortunate to find a good one. And his whole premise of every visit was based on the serenity prayer. And it was based on, you know, any issue I brought up, it was, he was really held my feet to the fire of, are you going to change it? or Are you going to accept it? And he would have me write down even on paper, like what ways can you accept it? What ways can you change it? Because I would wow. really complain a lot of, about yeah. things and, and things I've been complaining about for years, and you could just go in circles forever about that. And right. And so he wouldn't have that. It was like accept or change it. And it was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I, but that was just so helpful. And um, when I moved, I stopped seeing him, so I couldn't. I stopped after one year, but I, I hear his voice. I hear that message for myself, mm. and that has been another key component. And, and so that's helped me. Just, I don't feel like I'm staying stuck. If something's not working for me in any area, like, am I going to accept it or I'm going to change it? And, and I could figure out there's a, there's real things I can do. So it empowers yeah. me versus, you know, I just was, when I look back at 
pictures of myself or memories of that so much of that time, I was just not wanting to face things. I just was like an ostrich, you know. <laughs> I didn't want to face those things, and I didn't right. want to make hard decisions, and I didn't want to do the work that would, you know, a lot of it was based on fear. And, and so part of this whole thing has been when you start trusting yourself, you know, you know, the fear gets smaller, and you start realizing that I, you know, you can do things yeah. that you've been scared of. Right. We can do anything. That I think that's what I've learned in my recovery too. Is I've, I've, when I have those moments, those golden moments, and I realize like really, anyone can do anything. You know, I mean, yeah. if it's real. <laughs> okay, I can't ride a dragon, but I can. You know, I can. If I really want something, I can make it happen to some degree yeah. of reality. And when you realize that. Um, I think that scares some people, but you're in control of it, right? So you can do it to the degree that you're willing. That's right. Um, I feel like our listeners probably have a pretty good understanding of of why I wanted you to be heard on the Bubble Hour. Um, Every conversation I have with you is just sparkling and resonates with me literally for days. I was in a yoga class last night, and and, um, they – you had shared with me um, a phrase that uh, I think it's Rob Bell who says, be here now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know they're his words, but to me, they're your words because you're the one who introduced them to me. And so I was in this yoga class and they said, set your intentions. And I just heard your voice, be here now. And um, throughout the class, they kept calling us, you know, okay, remember your intention. And, and I knew I'd be talking to you today. So you're across on my mind, but I think that is the power of friendship and story is, uh, I know things you said today are going to be replaying through the minds of our listeners um, for a long time to come um, as they hear things that affect them. And I'm so, so grateful that you took the time today to share your story with us and to be so open and honest about it all. And um, I, I just, I can't thank you enough for being you and for, for being open about everything you've learned with us. Thank you, and I, when I, I'm so you know, honored to be here, and, and I can't tell you how much I've gotten from other people's stories that I've heard on this show and other podcasts, and um, I just, I'm, I'm just so moved by everyone, so it gives me, makes me feel safe enough to, to put myself out there, so thank you for having me. Oh, I'm glad you're here. So we could do the typical girl thing of saying goodbye for five minutes, but we'll stop ourselves here. I'll okay. close the show. All right. <laughs> okay. Talk to you later, Jean. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. All right. All right. Bye-bye. So uh, just as we close the show, I want to remind you that you're listening to The Bubble Hour, and um, you can visit our website at thebubblehour.com and dig through the archives of our old shows. We're not going to be replaying episodes anymore. Um, we don't want to waste your bandwidth downloading shows you've heard before. So go to our archives, and you know when you need something, there are I think there's 180 shows in the archives. So there's lots of great material for you there. You can also subscribe to us via iTunes, and I hope you will. A lot of you do that, and we thank you for it. If you have a topic suggestion or you'd like to be a guest on the show, email me at thebubblehour.com at g sorry email me at thebubblehour at gmail.com i'm jean from unpickled blog and i thank you for being here take good care